The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyot. So everybody here that's here, as usual, thank you again for joining these daily spaces that I do. My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour, Lakshman Achuthan, who is an absolute must-follow on Twitter and knows a little bit about the economy. So we're <laughs> going to talk about that here. But before we uh, get too deep, Lakshman, on, on the current state of the economy, talk about who you are, how'd you get involved in the dismal science and tell us about the economic research cycle, a cycle research institute. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So I'm Lakshman Achathan. I'm a co-founder of ECRI, the Economic Cycle Research Institute. I started working with the research group in uh, 1990. So it gives you a little sense of how old I am <laughs> when we were at Columbia University. And my mentor there was a man named Jeffrey Moore, who has been called the father of leading indicators. He's a business cycle researcher. And his mentor was a man named Wesley Mitchell, who back in the 1920s defined what a recession was in a book called The Business Cycle, The Problem and Its Setting. So we've got about 100 years of research behind us. So I'm in the third generation of that research. And ECRI, you know, I think our kind of the key thing about us that's different is we're very forward-looking, okay? I, I know a lot of, quote-unquote, forecasters are, are talking about things that in our world tend to be kind of coincident data. And we're, we're really tracking what we think are, are future indicators, leading indicators, what to to determine when coincident indicators are going to kind of break their trend and go the other way. That's the cyclical turn. And so we're very focused on repeatable kind of um, processes for identifying the risk of a turning point in growth. That's one big cycle. Another related but separate cycle is inflation. And a third related and, and but a distinct cycle is in the employment. And we do that we do that analysis for the United States, of course, but we also do this for twenty-two economies, market-oriented economies, including major emerging markets around the world. And we've been doing that for we probably started the international work on indicators. It's now, I'm afraid to say, almost half a century ago it was begun. We we work today, like in 2022, we're working with big investment managers. You could think of like a sovereign wealth fund or a pension fund or a hedge fund. And then also we're working with very large corporations. So, you know, they might have a specific kind of product that they're a, that they're a market leader on, like semiconductor chips or entertainment or specialty chemicals or, you know, manufactured goods where, or even things like, you know, basically what I'm describing are all kinds of things that have a discretionary component to them <laughs> because they're either going into a, a big kind of capital expenditure or they're a discretionary type of cons consumption consumer product. And, you know, there's, there's, I know sometimes recessions seem like they're few and far between, but we're very busy in between those recessions and, rec and recoveries because growth rate cycles, accelerations and decelerations in growth are really 
important for decision makers. And so there's obviously, and not obviously, but I'll say that there are many more growth rate cycles than business cycles. And so let me stop there. That's I just threw a lot out there on the table and uh, happy to happy to go in any direction you want to go. Yeah, that's good. Okay. So, so you mentioned that uh, there are a lot of economists that will forecast based on things which are much more coincident than leading. What are some of the the leading indicators that you most focus on for those inflections, whether it's cycle inflation cycle or cycle? Okay. So, well, I mean, so the original LEI, the leading economic indicators that were created by the Commerce Department, were originated in the 1960s. So that that original idea is just that that there are some things that could lead coincident measures. So let me describe a coincident measure is a measure of output. It's a measure of current employment. It's a measure of current income or current spending. And those four indicators define the economy outside your window. So theoretical, like in theory, just in well, not even in theory, just, just in practice, right? What is a good indicator of production? Well, for example, new orders, right? If you get a bunch of new orders, you're probably going to produce more in the coming couple of months, right? So that's a there's a logic behind that particular type of leading indicator. And then what you want to do is just because it's logical doesn't mean it actually works out. You have to empirically see that it works. And then after you see that it empirically works, you want to track that it works in all kinds of environments and over a long period of time, across space and time. And so something like a new order leading production, you know, is is something that would have been looked at by Jeffrey Moore and Wesley Mitchell, you know, over half a century ago. And then we've been tracking that and verifying its efficacy. That's just one little thing, right? So in any one leading index that you hear me talk about, there may be between, I don't know, seven, maybe let's say six and 10 components to the leading index. The key thing in developing a leading index is to, let's say we're still talking about production. Like, like then, then we want to have indicators that are related to that target, say industrial production. So it could be it could be new orders. It could be other things about confidence, about interest rates, credit, things that are going on in inventories. All of those different aspects can be areas to look for good leading indicators. And I'm just talking about ingredients, not the holy grail of anything. And if you can select what I call, quote unquote, good leading indicators, components to the index, and you can put them together in a way where you can see how they're moving in concert at certain times in the cycle they will reveal the risk of a turning point in the target in this case being production now what we're doing today what i've described as the basic construct of a leading indicator versus a coincident target like production but what we're doing today is for the united states you know i almost got two dozen leading indexes okay there's long leading indexes Weekly leading indexes, which are more promptly available but are don't have as long of a lead. Short leading indexes. There's leading indicators for the services sector, the financial sector, the construction sector, non-residential and residential construction, exports, manufacturing, and when you you know services and goods. And, and so when you are watching tracking all of those leading indexes, which are looking at variations on cycles and growth. You get a highly nuanced, number one, view of what's the cyclical landscape. And then two, and probably the more important thing, it, because it, is that you get conviction at the turning point. And, you know, you could do a lot of stuff, but it's rare to have conviction. <laughs> and, and so having conviction about something, you know, with some good evidence, some, some good kind of objective evidence is, is valuable. That's not, that's not typical to have that. And what we find is around cycle turning points, it's when the co- that's when the coincident data gets really messy because it's in flux. It's, it's changing its trend or its trend is breaking. And forecasters that are very focused on kind of now casting, you know, adding up all of the, the quickest views, like big data is very good at kind of counting how many people came into a store, right? And so that's all now casting. And and if you're focused on now casting and coincident data, it gets 
all there's by definition there's a lot of cross currents in the data at the turning point so having the conviction provided by lots of good leading indexes that are moving in the same direction can provide the the kind of staying power the wherewithal to to go against the crowd which will probably want to extend whatever the recent trend was in in terms of their expectations and so that may seep through sometimes where we, we're like, hey, there's a turning point. We sound like we're being very bold or or whatever. What I'm what I'm really just subsuming into a soundbite is a couple dozen leading indexes are backing me up on that. Okay. And in terms of the the way with which the different indices are weighting the components, is it effectively like a regression? How do you think through sort of what which component maybe gets a higher weighting more contribution yeah. to the index than not? No, it's a great question. So, so the so the regression type of approach works really well in modeling, in, econo- in econometric modeling, which is great for scenario planning. Or, you know, if there is no turning point in the vicinity, it's probably a reasonable way to forecast. But around turning points, regressions are going to be dominated by the time away from turning points, and so they can give very muffled pieces of information. So. We're not using regressions in, in what we do. But still, there's the question of, you know, how do you relate one one piece, one one ingredient to another ingredient of a leading index? And there... Right, because they're going to be shared factors, obviously. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. No, they are. But then good leading indicators, a well-constructed leading indicator is going to, you know, be drawing from different aspects, different drivers, of the cycle. So, so there's, there's definitely overlap, but hopefully not a lot of overlap is the intention and the design and the creation now, but back to this thing, this question of, you know, weightings and stuff, you, you, you essentially are looking at, at some, you know, the various measures of cyclical volatility of the inputs. So a very, very volatile kind of indicator may, may end up not because we have a particular opinion about the importance of the information, but we don't want it to overwhelm a less volatile indicator. So it may it may therefore get a, a bit of a lower, you know, we'll mute the signal a little bit out of that indicator. But the intention, right? And this is really important to understand about, I, I guess, just about who ECRI is, right? So we're, we don't have an axe to grind. Look, I'm, I'm happy to forecast an upturn or a downturn. The in terms of I just want to tell the story of the indicators and to do so, let's say there's a half a dozen inputs into an index in one cycle, one or two of those indicators may move first. But the key thing is that all of them begin to sing the same chorus and agree that there's a turning point that's pronounced pervasive and persistent turn in our indicators. And you'll, you'll remember I've talked that way about the three P's. And in the next cycle, it may be a different set of indicators that or, or, or even indicators that, that, that start to move first and then the other ones come in behind it. So we do not presume to know which one is better, which, which one of the drivers is the primary driver. I don't think we, we know that. We know what the good drivers are, so we're monitoring them. But we don't know in any particular cycle what, what the story is beforehand. I think what happens is, in retrospect, stories gel around cycle turning points, and then maybe models get tweaked or whatnot. That's not what we do. But I think the consensus kind of gets around certain stories around turning points. And sometimes they're just flat out wrong stories. But the, you know, the story remains. It can persist anyway. You, you know what's interesting to me, and, and I, I, I share sort of the mentality in terms of not leading indicators for the economy, but in my world, leading indicators for changing volatility dynamics, which is what risk on risk off ultimately is about. But the I've had people ask the question of, you know, is there is there a way to forecast the forecasting tools that you use, right? In other words, uh, yeah. Yeah, if the yeah, leading yeah. indicators get too extreme, would that mean that it's more of a false signal or, or you know, can, can, you, can you determine not the inflection points of the coincident indicators, but the leading indicators? Yeah. I mean, my quick answer, it's a perfectly good question to ask, first off. And, and I have asked that question. <laughs> the more and more I learned about this stuff, the more and more I wanted to do that too, right? 
Because look, the stock market is a leading indicator. It's imperfect as they all are, right? But it is it is a form of a leading indicator of turning points. And if you understand its limitations, then you can put it into your you know framework. And we do the the thing is though in trying to predict the predictors, right? So we have an indic- we have indicators. When I say long leading index, I want to be clear that in con you know the, the stock stock prices are short leading indicators of the of the cycle, the cycles and growth. Long leading indicators are different than that. they have a longer lead, and and therefore stock prices are not included in our long leading index. Now the long leading index, the farther out you push your forecast over the target, which is in this case growth, the farther out you push your forecast, it gets noisier and there's a limit to how far you can push it. You know, we do not use the yield spread as a leading indicator because the leads are in many cases too long and too variable, right? So the leads can be a couple years in some instances and they can vary by almost as much. So it's not that helpful as a decision-making tool, but suffice to say that we have indicators in our long-leading indexes, and we have them for 22 economies, right? And this is what we've been doing for decades, is building these things. And long-leading indicators are about as far as we can push it. They, they could lead cycles in growth by three quarters, and maybe in some instances a little bit longer. Our very farthest, most esoteric long-leading index is not for any one country, but it is for global industrial growth. So it's a non-country specific. It's like global IP growth, global industrial production growth. And so that leading index leads by about a year. And not for lack of trying, that's about as good as it gets. It does not get any better than that. And with, with that type of lead time, you need shorter leading indicators to confirm what the longer leading indicators have tipped you off to. And and we do that. So we look at sequences of leading indicators. Now, the end result of the whole thing about predicting a, a leading index is that I would not advise, I would pass on the advice that Jeffrey Moore gave me. And remember, he spent his life developing these things. And he said, you know, do not try to predict the predictors. And and part of it is is, I think that when, when you get into why, I think that maybe the stuff that's going to push around the cycle in a year hasn't even happened yet or been decided yet by the power, you know, by the major drivers that drive the economy. And so I think we're, we're kind of, I, I don't believe the state of the art's going to radically change in terms of longer lead times. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello listeners, Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. And the, the reason I went in that direction, it sounds like a strange question. It's like, why would you want to even try to predict the predictors? Because it ultimately is, is even from a portfolio management perspective, right? It, it It's a question of, and it kind of goes to your point about confidence. If you try to find something that gets ahead of the leading indicator, that will then cause a temptation to not pay attention to the leading indicator or to do something counter to it. And the problem, not, right? Yeah. No, no, to do something counter to it. Exactly. Right. And, and it's more sort of that. That's the, my contention would be that if you try and do that, then you're putting a almost a subjective element to what should be a purely quantitative rules based way of looking at the world. Yeah. I mean, it would be nice to be totally rules based and quantitative, except for the fact that we're all, uh, you know, in the in the science fiction kind of genre, we're all meat puppets, you know, or meat whatever. We're you know, you know, we're these psychological people that are, are, are as a group moved around by fear and greed, and that psychological component is a big driver of the cycle, and that's why ultimately I think it's pretty hard to to model the whole thing. We have we we also have 
you know, I mean, just to give you a little insight into my world, right? So I think about it as, okay, there's the coincident data, which most people are focused on. And we're trying to, my job every day is, what's the risk that the coincident data is going to turn and go another way? And it could be coincident data in growth or inflation. Let's to, to just define it that way. And a separate cycle in inflation. I'm talking to both investment managers and businesses, right? So an investment manager is trying to figure out, okay, what is everybody everybody going to want to buy bonds or stocks? I'm oversimplifying it, right? And that's that's about right. <laughs> that's about right. They want to buy bonds or stocks, right? And and so the question right now, right? So look, we we forecast a growth rate cycle downturn a long time ago, and then now we're saying, hey, it's it's the odds are extremely high. It ends in a recession, the contraction, right? So so then there's the there's however the world has adjusted to that. You know, there's some story they need to fill in the 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 to to that cyclical development, and so you know the story. Everybody listening knows some version of the story behind that slowdown and the the recession debate that's going on. And I'm oversimplifying again. I just got off a call two seconds ago with with somebody who was describing this for a, for a portfolio. Is that okay? We're 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 relatively bearish, you know, in the sense that we think that it could go into recession, but it's going to be mild because of tight job market or balance sheets, you know, depending on which ones you're looking at are relatively okay. And um, so therefore, maybe this is, you know, probably still a bear market rally. I, I, I appreciated your tweet for this, this spaces <laughs> where the rip your face off the rally, right? Well, that, especially, in the context of share, especially in the context of what I shared at the top of the space, which is that when you look at your weekly league index, that keeps diverging, just like yeah. lumber prices are diverging, just like utilities yeah. are still normally strong, right? These are not things that you would see at an inflection point, uh, at a cycle point for the markets, I would argue. Precisely. Well, so so look, the, there's always the chance that we're wrong. Okay, I'm not saying we're perfect, but when I look at the weight of the evidence, and it's a lot more than the weekly leading index, I don't, I can't objectively present an argument for a trough showing up in the forward-looking data. Okay, and so therefore the question has to be: in this instance, does the stock market? In you know, in, in in the intelligence that's in the stock market price, is that somehow having a longer lead than these other indicators? And there's many of them, right? And they're fairly tried and tested. And is it possible? Sure, it's possible. Is it probable? No, I don't think it's probable. So therefore, I kind of go along with the sentiment that it's a you know, this is a a bear market rally. I still think that there's the demand destruction has not run its course, right? And the probably the most material thing that I'd like to share with you today is that I alluded to the international aspect, right, of uh, of our work. And so not everybody really see nobody sees that, right? I mean, look, you know, a few people we talk to see it, but the I don't think the world at large sees this or understands this. There's the 22 country long leading index tracking. We're all moving to the downside. Okay, so that's in line with a global recession. All right. So now, if I'm if I if I need to think through what does a global recession scenario look like. Right. We have a few of them to think about. The Great Recession is one, although I don't I think technically there, I don't think China went into recession. Then you go back to the early 80s, 81, 82, which is when Volcker, having taken his foot off the brake, remember, he causes the 1980 recession. Then inflation starts to come down. Underlying inflation pressure starts to come down. He eases up. Right. He, he, he takes his foot off the brake and uh, inflation starts to rise. And then he just says, screw it. And he stomps on the brakes and you get a year and a half global recession, 81, 82. And then you'd have to go back into the 70s for the other ones. So global recessions, a characteristic of them is that there's no locomotive of demand to kind of help offset weakness elsewhere. As a result, for any particular country, they can be a little more severe, or let's just say not mild, you know, just to be less dramatic. <laughs> They're not mild. 
And that's a very live scenario that's staring me at the face when I look at 22 countries of long leading indexes that they're, you know, a very weak reading. And then separately from that, if you look around the world, and this is observable to anybody listening, with the exception of, I think, China and Japan, all of the central banks are tightening. And from your spokes or whatever, you'll kind of remember that monetary policy works with long and variable lags. So the prospect of the bulk of the world central banks tightening at a time when the forward-looking long-leading indicators are moving to the downside, that's not a great combo. I'm glad to hear you because it sounds so obvious, right? But but and before I go to the audience, and again, everybody that's here, first of all, make sure you follow Lachman and and obviously yeah. check out uh, his research. And and those that want to ask questions, just click bottom left. I'm trying to bring you up and just check your DM so we can coordinate. But you said you, you said that you said something that was interesting. You said as we debate recession, which is kind of interesting because I, I don't recall a time in my career, maybe just because I'm probably younger than you are, where there was a debate the way there is now to the extent where there are seemingly changing definitions. Now, I, I want to hear your definition if you're if you're sure. going to say, OK, let, yeah. let, what is a real recession? Are we in one? In Are we in one? Is You know, I don't want to make it yeah. political, but I think this is kind of an interesting uh, area. It's though. not it's not it's not complicated. And it look, the world is political, so it's going to get political. When I first started with Dr. Moore in 1990, right, there's a 1990, 91 recession. And it was a that was a jobless recovery. Clinton was coming in. Remember, so he's he's in the election against Bush senior at that point. And the NBER was struggling because it was such an anemic recession and the jobless recession back then, so-called jobless recession, that you had a very long time until the NBER, not, not very long, but relatively long time for them to date the end of recession. And I remember back then, my, I was like, what's going on? You know, I'm a kid then, and, and people were, you know, Partisans were upset with the NBER for not dating the recovery earlier because they felt that it hurt George Bush Sr. in that in that regard. Today, again, whatever, you know, there's the partisan stuff, but the definition has not changed. And it's quite simple. I could say it in 20 seconds. It's a pronounced, pervasive, and percent decline in output, employment, income, and sales and broad measures of those things. And so, obviously, GDP is one measure of output. So, okay, that one's down. Industrial production, sales, and income. When you look at those measures, the big aggregate measures, they're all pretty darn weak, if not recessionary outright. Employment has been slowing quite sharply. Household employment, actually, growth has has dipped negative. Establishment has not. Establishment can get revised a bit. It's not a recession unless you have jobs losses. So if for some reason or another, there are no job losses in the next year or two, then this can't be called a recession. Okay, But our expectation is that that will present itself. And there are some weird moments. I think there's the mid-70s is probably the weirdest one where you know the recession actually begins, but you don't get the job losses right away. They, they come several months into the recession. I mean, this is not an exact science. All of these measures are, are different aspects of the economy. But the recession itself, it, again, it's not a statistic. It's a vicious cycle where under certain conditions, you'll have job losses, income declines, consumption easing, output easing, and that leads to weaker employment or income. And that starts to rev in a negative way. That's what a recession is. A recession is a cycle. It's not a statistic. I'm sorry, that took more than 30, 20 seconds. <laughs> I was say, but you know, I, 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 I feel like you should edit the Wikipedia page uh, like everyone else seemingly wants to do about defining recession yeah. because it, it, it's, it's utterly wild to me the way that this is, this is now what we're discussing and debating as a country. But the other thing is, I got to tell you, I work with all these companies, right? So the companies... What are they looking at? They're they're like, okay, everybody's you can kind of game a share price or whatever, or the if the Fed says this or that, the interest rate moves a little bit. But how many people are coming through the door to buy your stuff? And boy, oh boy, companies are very sensitive to all this ebb and flow. And they know that demand is slipping very fast here. They are they know that. 
And that's that's starting to show up in some of the data that people look at. Let's go to some of the audience yep. for questions. Go ahead and unmute yourself. Thank you. So what I'm doing, again, just to clarify, is, is these leading indicators are very well selected to represent the drivers of the cycle. And so I'm sharing with you the story that they are telling me. As opposed and, 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 I, and I think, and I think, and I think the, the and kind of interesting because it goes, goes to the name of the space, the business cycle returns because, you know, there's this, there was this argument out there a lot, you know, for a while, which is that the Fed basically killed off any kind of cycles. Yeah. Right. That age of moderation. Yeah. 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 So, so just let's set the stage here. First off, the business cycle is dead talk. It, it happens. Right. People, people talk about from time to time over history. I guess Irving Fisher famously talked about the the uh, permanent plateau of prosperity and then in the, in the, right before the 29 crash in the 60s there's a long expansion they talked about the business cycle being obsolete in the 90s with the new so-called new era they talked about the business cycle is dead more recently just before covid right or, or you you had uh, with the advent of a lot of the crypto stuff you had the idea that the, there had been these technological transformations that were going to kind of transform the way economies work so that the macro was was dead. And now I think that's come full circle to where there's a realization that, you know, crypto's kind of risk on, risk off, generally levered. <laughs> and the cycle can kind of give you a hint on risk on or risk off. And right now the cycle's telling you risk off. Now to the to the question that was just asked by the by the listener. So the Fed is kind of they're kind of lost at the moment, right? They they sense the Great Recession or the financial crisis or whatever you want to talk, call it, the the policy has been one of, you can call it kind of the QE era, right? Where if there's weakness, you don't want to really let the market go down too much because you need the wealth effect the kind of, as a kind of a policy tool. And so we'll give a lot of support through lower interest rates or quantitative easing and liquidity to the markets. And that is a I'm not going to say whether that's right or wrong. I'd rather not talk that way, but I, what I could say is you can get away with that when there's not a lot of inflation. But when there's inflation, now the, now they're 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 stuck and and they were hoping that there wasn't inflation, right? We had the whole chapter of transitory where by the way, from our inflation cycle monitoring, our future inflation gauge, we made an inflation cycle upturn call in in uh, September of 2020. I mean, we saw it coming earlier than that, but we made the official call in September of 2020. And of course, the Fed kept everything easy for well over a year into fall of 2021. I mean, I think they only they only started raising in March. So, I mean, this is irresponsible from a cyclical kind of inflation management point of view. And it certainly handcuffs them in terms of the policy approach they've had which is to support the markets every time the markets get upset. So here we have, I guess, in the wake of the last Fed meeting, this hope for the pivot, right? And you, whatever, you have some rally going on, if it's a bear market rally or whatever. And the fact remains that the forward-looking indicators on growth haven't turned up. And the forward-looking indicators on inflation, you know, they basically remain elevated. and so. I don't. I don't know if that playbook works right now. The the QE playbook, you know, inflation kind of reined them in here. I put out a tweet saying that the Fed doesn't control inflation; oil controls inflation, just because of the tight link between oil prices and and inflation expectations and break evens. And it's not a coincidence, I don't think, that markets bottomed pretty much a week after oil topped and energy stocks topped, at least from a sequence perspective, which we can talk about in a bit. But let me get some more of the audience. My quick answer is yes, they do matter quite a bit. And again, that's why I was saying it was pretty irresponsible to just hope that inflation rising was was transitory. Also, just as a as a course, when we talk about the Fed and business cycle and stuff, right? So Volcker, we know, dealt with inflation by raising rates, as you said. And there was that little moment in between the 1980 recession and then the 81-82 recession where he had let his foot off the brake. He let he, he had eased on rates. And, you know, 
I, you know, I, maybe he did like mission accomplished too early, right? And was hopeful that he could generate a soft landing, but he couldn't. You know, inflation was still embedded, and it very quickly was regaining its footing, which is what required the kind of severe eighty one, eighty two recession and a, and a very aggressive response from the Fed to do that. There's Dr. Moore uh, gave me another economic truism, which I may have shared before. You might have heard before, which is that recession kills inflation at demand destruction. So lacking more sophisticated kind of tools, Powell finds himself in that situation. We can, this is a whole nother session or, or, you know, uh, or, you know, show that we could do, but the Fed gave up on trying to be preemptive and they're, they're reactive. And the, if you think of what about the way cycles work with respect to interest rate policy and the fact that movements in interest rates, monetary policy work with long and variable lags. So if you're if your environment is cyclical, and let's stipulate that it is, market oriented economies have a an inherent endogenous cycle to them, then and your job is to try to smooth things out of it which is roughly what their job is. And the tool that you have works with long and variable lags. If you're not trying to be preemptive, you're almost guaranteed to exacerbate the cycle, make the cycle more volatile. And that, especially now that we have rates, we're starting from the rates being so low, as you were saying, that a small rise in interest rates on a percentage basis is extreme. To me, I, I want to be prepared for more volatility, both in the economy and in the markets, because I think there is a link between the markets and the, and the economic cycles. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Selfishly, from my perspective, I hope you're right, but I hope that volatility means that treasuries diverge from equities in that high volatility, that the drawdowns are not correlated the way we've seen the first six months. But I want to go back to that point about recession kills inflation because, you know, again, if 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 you're going to go with the argument that there's going to be some kind of mean reversion as inflation comes down, and if recession is the catalyst for that mean reversion, the mean is going to be higher, but you still have to go past the mean. Right to kind of really oh, yeah. get back to yeah. you know right, what the right proper historical inflation you can quote unquote should be right. So wouldn't that then conceivably argue that the only way to really kill inflation is with not just recession but sort of a real deep recession? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I think I mean, and you know, the story that the indicators are telling us is that we we should be prepared for a, a less than a mild recession, right? A more severe recession because of the global nature of it. That'll you know if you if you. So, so when you look inside inflation, you know, there's, there's the headline and core, right? And so food and energy really ran up like crazy. Goods inflation, which has typically been disinflationary for the past decade or something, ran up really sharp because of the COVID-related stuff and the stimmy checks. And the services inflation, you know, it had typically always been a few percent had gone up a little bit. And now, if you, if you think about the policy is the fiscal and the monetary. The fiscal stuff really goosed the goods consumption, right? Because of the situation we were in and, and, and being at home and whatever. And the supply chain couldn't take it and everything went to the moon. The monetary stimulus, which was significant, right? That supports things like either share prices or home prices. And the, the issue that gets problematic for inflation is the rental stuff. Yeah, those are sticky. And they're a big piece of the basket. And so, you know, maybe 9% something inflation is around the top and it can come off a little bit, but it's not going to come off radically or, you know, that's not in the cards in, in the coming months or maybe even this year. And so, you know, you probably, that's why you end up with central banks all over the world raising rates because they kind of goofed up on the inflation cycle and they don't know any better. 
basically, right? They have, they're like, oh, we were late. And, and they, you know, this is the old adage, a stitch in time saves nine. If you raised rates a little bit earlier, you wouldn't have to do nine of them now or whatever. And, and uh, here we are. And I think ultimately, you know, this isn't, I mean, we'll survive this, but the risk is that it is a more severe recession based on what we're reading right now, because inflation is not going to drop like a stone. And therefore, the banks remain restrictive, even though the forward data is recessionary. Yeah, I mean, literally, we, we, we're certainly looking at exchange rates that they're related to some of the drivers of inflation. So it's in the mix. You know, oil is related to drivers of inflation. It's in the mix. But you can have the cycle move in a, in a different direction from either of those indicators at times on inflation, because it's really the co-movement of all the drivers, not just one that's going to, you know, one indicator can't do it. You need a pervasive set of drivers moving the cycle. Now, having said that, when, when you think about a global recession, right, first off, if you're an exporter, you're in, that's difficult, right? And so that hurts. When you think about the other choices you have, it's kind of like the least dirty shirt kind of question. The other choices I hate, you have. I hate that analogy so yeah, much, I, I got to tell know. you. Oh, it's brutal. But I guess I, I, it's just like, where are you going to go? It's a tough one because as bad as the situation may be here in the United States, I'm not, I don't know that I can make a stronger argument for Europe. And when I look at Japan has its, its kind of unique situation. And then, and then you look at, I know that we haven't even talked about it, but there's a lot of issues that, that, that are difficult for China, aside from a global recession, by the way. And, and, and also, mind you, in the Great Recession, coming out of that, China spent money like there was no tomorrow. And they can't do that today if we go into a global recession, right? So, so things are very different. There may be some rhymes here and there, but it's very different. I think that liquidity is certainly an issue as well. I, it's a little hard to know how much QT is actually happening compared to what was advertised. And, can you and can you expand on that a little bit? Because I, I've seen all kinds of people making that case, showing these divergences between different different aspects of the way the money supply is is behaving. But but talk about that a little bit because that's well. I mean, in theory, well, in theory, the Fed is saying, "Hey, we're going to be restrictive because we are taking inflation seriously." And so, therefore, we're aggressively raising rates and we're switching from QE to QT. And then the QT, you have to kind of watch, right? Because it's supposed to ramp up quite a bit in, as we go into the fall, maybe even double, I think. And then, but it's a little harder to monitor than, say, the Fed funds rate. And, and so that's why I'm just like, you know, I, I think it was Reagan who said, you know, trust but verify. And so, and so we just want to verify that they're kind of following through on what they say that they're going to do with quantitative tightening. But I think that obviously that liquidity has been a, a big support for different aspects of the economy. And when you raise rates, and there, one of the earlier participants was saying, you know, you and you raise rates, we're doing it in a way sharper than Volcker did even, right? Because we're just coming with these really low rates. And all the knock-on effects for all the activity that's been going on, right? With different types of companies coming to market and getting funding and private equity or other venture stuff. A lot of that stuff is under extreme pressure here. It was a, you know, a reasonable piece of business activity not too long ago. So the long and variable lags, it's, it's like, how does a shift in interest rates propagate through the economy? It doesn't just show up on Monday just because the S&P moved a little bit one way or the other. It takes a while. And all of those knock-on effects, I think, you know, we're going to be sifting through in, 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 as we go, go into the fall. The the dollar, though, is uh, – I've made that argument before that you often see sovereign debt crises first manifest in currencies before anybody really sees sort of something major happening on, on the local side. But it is it, – just more sort of a risk question. But when you see – such abnormal strength in the dollar, weakness in the euro, weakness in the yen. Does that make you sort of, from a shorter term leading indicator perspective, does that, does that something make you, does that make you wonder if there's a tail event that could be imminent, right? Because it's very odd just the way the strength has occurred. And it just seems to me that that's sort of a real warning sign potentially of something major. Well, Look, this is uh, these are all these little cliches, but right when the when the tide goes out, you see who's been swimming naked or whatever. But you'll you'll you're gonna 
there's when when you have if we have a more severe downturn, right? And and we think that's a very live scenario because of what we're seeing with our global long-leading indexes. All, you know, these weak links have a potential to break. You know, I, I kind of alluded to the PE stuff, but the the general way that that gets dealt with is people probably mark that down a little bit each year going forward rather than realizing a loss all at once. When you look at currencies around the world, there's a lot of strain. I see for sure the Japanese are thrilled to have inflation above 2%. And let's see how long they're excited about it. We have to watch those future inflation gauges around the world. It may be that they that they start to peak as the growth downturns take hold. We have to monitor that. But with the exception of Japan and China, all the central banks are following the Fed, if not trying to front run the Fed a little on tightening. And and again, I'm just reminding myself because I said China here, you know, the 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 China stuff is is tricky. They've got a well-advertised kind of situation with a lot of debt, a lot of real estate risk. Some, The vast majority of the household wealth, like a, a household of people, the, 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 their wealth is tied up in real estate. And real estate itself, the levels of real estate values are starting to fall. There's a couple of exceptions, but but many of them are starting to fall. That's not great for the Chinese consumer and and China, you know, does have a significant domestic economy and they're limited in what they can do in terms of tightening. They they're one of I think in Davos was it at the beginning of the year, she was saying, "Hey, what you guys are all tightening and you shouldn't tighten." Because <laughs> I mean, he's talking his book, but it, it it's also, you know, true that tightening into a global recessionary outlook is is a is a bad thing. And if you're already at risk, because of imbalances, and let's say China has some decent imbalances with its real estate stuff, you, those are those can be pretty significant events. I mean, now I'm going out of my expertise, but you know, it it seems like if if you if you look at history, when things go wrong in terms of whatever policymakers are doing, sometimes you get that you can get distracted by skirmishes here and there, you know. And so, you know, I know the whole discussion with the geopolitical stuff with China is not new. It's been going on for a long time, but it, it's heating up right now. And, you know, it's a bit of a distraction from what's going on in the economy. We'll do one one last question. Everybody, again, please make sure you follow Lockspin here on Twitter. Thank you for the question. Look, the just a piece of history here. Jeffrey Moore was Alan Greenspan's professor. So my mentor was Alan Greenspan's professor. Greenspan was, you know, quote unquote, the maestro for a period of time. And uh, I think part of what he was doing, they, they stayed in touch when he was Fed chairman. And I've written a, a piece that I'll put up on Twitter. I'll find it and put it up this afternoon about what the Fed forgot. OK, because they knew for, I'd say, like the Fed circa 1990s, they they understood a lot more about inflation cycles. And 1994-95 was a pretty bad year in the bond market because the Fed made a move, a preemptive move around the inflation cycle that caught the consensus off guard. But I think it was important in helping to lengthen the expansion of the 1990s. So we have a very different read on the 1990s than pretty much everybody because of the relationship between cycles and Fed policy. Other than that, I I think the Fed has been kind of, you know, they have 400 PhD economists who are really good at modeling the Phillips curve. And that is kind of what they've been trying to do. It doesn't really work. And it led them down a path that I think set us up for the situation we are in today. It, it led them down a path which which had them look at inflation rising and say it was transitory and misunderstand that. And I think they should be responsible for that. But look, I got plenty to do. I don't want to get involved with them, <laughs> to tell you the truth. But I'll, I'm happy to talk with you guys. And uh, we can navigate around it. And, uh, you know, maybe at some point there'll be a new person at the Fed who will be open to things other than these models that they use. Because, again, monetary policy works with long and variable lags. So you got to get ahead of the turning point a little bit, or at least the leading indicator. You got to be react. You, You have to be cognizant 
of the leading indicators of inflation if that's part of your mandate. And then the uh, the the what was the other question you had? If the, if the Fed was a uh, was a client, or why weren't they a client? I think they just. I think I don't think their ego will let them do it. Maybe we just put it that way. Yeah, that's thank you. It's an important question because I've got to navigate a little bit pre QE era and post QE era, before QE era, before the Great Recession, you had pretty much a one-to-one correspondence between cycles in the market, equity markets, and cycles in growth. Meaning that if you're in a growth rate cycle downturn, which can surround a recession, right? You can you can start slowing before the recession. Then if you get into the recession, it may it may be like full blown bear market. And then you need a growth rate cycle trough in order to kind of come out of the recession. So a growth rate cycle downturn had a virtually kind of one-to-one correspondence with share prices in terms of having a pronounced, pervasive, and persistent decline. And persistent meant at least a couple quarters. Post-GFC, in the QE era, the you still have pronounced and you still have pervasive in terms of broad market declines during growth rate cycle downturns. But they they those declines would not persist because the Fed would come in in such a way, this quantitative era, easing era kind of way, to cut off the persistence of the decline in the equity markets. In a way, they were kind of developing a a new policy lever being the wealth effect. You know, if share prices go up or home prices stabilize, then this may support consumption in a different way. By the way, right now with with real S&P and and real home prices falling very fast, we're we're getting this negative wealth effect which I think is intentional by the Fed to slow down the economy. And they would I, I think they would very much like to continue this kind of QE policy if they could. But inflation won't let them do that. So what becomes very important is how quickly will the future inflation gauge fall? And, you know, so far, even though the peak in actual inflation may be in, the forward-looking data isn't suggesting that it's about to fall off a cliff or anything, even though oil came down a bit, right? It doesn't look like it's going to fall off a cliff. So I think that keeps these banks, relatively speaking, restricted, even though the market hopes that they're going to pivot in short order. I think that's a, a good way to end the space. Everybody here, please make sure you follow Lachman and do what the Fed does not, which is drive your service. <laughs> and everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Lachman. This is a great conversation. Michael, thank you as always. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.